Hi, I'm Ebony Monet. And I'm Rick Schwartz. Welcome to Amazing Wildlife, where we explore the unique stories of wildlife from around the world and uncover fascinating animal facts. This podcast is a production of iHeartRadio and San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance, an international nonprofit conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and Safari Park. They're black and white and loved all over. Today, we're talking about penguins. The tuxedo-clad birds are immediately recognizable. But there's more to these flightless seabirds than their distinct coloration. Like, did you know the hierarchy within the colonies determines a penguin's access to food and mates? And we're checking in with our conservation partner in South Africa that saves abandoned African penguin chicks to help revive the population of this endangered species. Rick, penguins live in such big groups. It's one of the things that stands out about them. How are these colonies structured? I understand their social structure is one of the things that specialists say make them so interesting. Well, yes. And Ebony, I got to say, penguins are well known for their sort of tuxedo-like looks. But when you look past that formal attire, you do see a truly fascinating flightless bird. You know, as you mentioned, the social dynamic of these birds is really pretty impressive. And specifically, the species of penguin we have at the San Diego Zoo, the African penguins. Uh, Our colony of African penguins is really interesting. And uh, honestly, there are so many personalities within that group. And then the dynamics from the pairs that are together and how everything works, it's really fascinating. Rick, when I think of penguins, I'm sure like many people, I think of the Arctic and images of penguins waddling on the ice. Are people surprised to learn that there are penguins in Africa? Oh, yes. I mean, I got to be honest with you. When I was first in college, really, you know, ramping up, studying my my species and and everything, I was right there. I had no idea there were warm weather penguins. Uh, it, It was surprising for me. And I know we have guests all the time coming to the zoo. They are like, wait a minute. African penguins? Uh, But yeah, they live along the southern coast and off the sort of offshore islands there of Africa. Uh, They're one of actually several species that live in warmer climates, not on that classic sort of Antarctic ice flow that we always, you know, picture in our mind. And although they're well suited for living that life in the cold waters off that warm coast, uh, they also spend a fair amount of their time on the beaches during the breeding season and while raising their young, you know, hatching those chicks, getting them to grow. This is where it gets kind of funny. They're usually, that's the key word, they're usually monogamous. So each couple will usually return to the same beach every year in the same nesting site. And these colonies then are made up of, if you will, neighborhoods of penguins uh, on these rocky shores that all know each other year after year. And they go back to the same nesting site, like I said. So it's pretty impressive. And then during the breeding season, you know, you can see a lot of African penguins just there in that one area on those beaches. So a penguin being usually monogamous, that stands out to me as being unique. Is it, though? Do birds typically have, like, a lifelong mating partner? In many species, we do see this happen. But if one of the partners happens to pass away, they will usually find another mate. And we've also noticed, I have to be honest here, full transparency, at the San Diego Zoo in our colony, sometimes a little drama does get dusted up, and we happen to see that maybe there's a couple that might have somebody they see on the side. <laughs> and this is something that we also see in the wild as well. This is can be attributed to sort of the importance of diversifying the genetic pool that way too for the species survival. Because I know like a lot of people kind of turn to nature to find out whether or not 
monogamy is is natural or not. I think that's fair enough to say from the most recent studies that come out that it is debatable on how monogamous species can be. So the debate continues. (laughs) The debate continues. (laughs) So African penguins live in large colonies like other species of penguins that live in cold environments. I would think that they would need to huddle together, which would not be as necessary in African um, environment or on the coast of Africa. Why do African penguins live in these large groups? Yeah, I think, you know, that's a, that's a, again, it goes back to kind of we, we have this image of these penguins in this cold weather. So they're going to huddle together to stay warm. And that is true for a lot of the species that live on the Antarctic ice. That, that, that cluster, that tight group helps keep that body warmth together, keeps the cold air out. Now, when it comes to our friends, the African penguins, though, really the short answer is safety in numbers. You know, although these penguins, they are really well adapted to evade danger in open water with their speed and agility. On land, though, they do look good, but that tuxedo is not going to help them like it does James Bond to avoid the bad guys. You see, here's the thing. They are slow waddlers, and so there's safety in numbers. When the African penguins are together like that, they collectively as a group can protect their nest. They can protect their chicks and each other from any would-be predator that might come into the nesting site. So what makes the African penguin able to live in warmer temperatures? You know, it's one of those things where it's, it seems really odd to imagine, you know, you're like when you think of a sandy beach, <laughs> you, you don't think penguins, right? But yeah, there they are, you know, right there on the coast of Southern Africa on these rocky and sandy beaches. And they have adapted really well. So most penguin species, of course, have adaptations for, you know, being nice and warm with thick blubber to be in these cold climates. But when it comes to our African penguin friends, there's a couple of adaptations and things they figured out on their own. So one of them, which I know initially this sounds kind of gross, and so let me explain it. When they create a nest, they dig out a burrow that protects them from the sun. Now, that part's not the gross part, but it's in guano. And so for listeners who don't know what guano is, it's a buildup of excrement from the years of penguins being on these beaches. Yes, bird poop. <laughs> but here's, here's the thing about guano is when it dries and, and sets over the years and they can burrow into it, it's a lot like adobe or clay. So when they burrow into it, the temperatures maintain perfect temperatures for the nest. When the sun's out, it protects them from the heat of the sun. When it gets cooler at night, it maintains a warmer temperature. So that's a great adaptation for how can they have these eggs out in the open suns of Africa. And then, of course, this is something actually I want to challenge our listeners. If you come to the San Diego Zoo and you happen to see our penguins, look at the eye patches or the bear patches, I should say, above their eyes. If they are bright pink, that means the bird is kind of warm and it's cooling itself off. So these bare patches above their eye allow them to regulate their temperature. If their temperature is cool, that will be more of a skin color. And it turns bright pink because the capillaries or the vessels that bring blood close to the surface, they're opening up and allowing that blood to come close to the surface of the skin to radiate the body heat out into the environment. It's a really cool adaptation that they have to keep cool. One other fun thing I have to share, they've also figured out shade works. So if there's no shade available, they'll turn their little backs to the sun and put their wings or flippers in front of their body and their feet, which then puts that a part of their body in the shade to help keep them cool as well. So they're pretty smart little birds. Sounds like it. How many different types of penguins are there in the world? This number, Ebony, might surprise a few people. There are a total of 18 species of penguins. And here's a fun fact for you. 17 of them are only found in the southern hemisphere or below the equator. So when we look at the Earth, the equator being that sort of hula hoop around the middle, 
Below that is called the Southern Hemisphere, and 17 of the 18 are found right there in that Southern Hemisphere. So who's our one species that is not considered part of the Southern Hemisphere? Well, that's the Galapagos penguin living on the Galapagos Islands, which happens to go right along the equator. So they're considered to be an equatorial species. What are the major similarities and differences between the penguins in the Arctic and the ones on the beaches of South Africa? Well, I mean, I think at a glance, we can definitely say there are a lot of similarities. I mean, for instance, not only the coloration pattern that we see, that, that black and white classic color, but also they're all great swimmers. You know, they use their powerful wings as flippers. It's a great adaptation where it doesn't fold up like a traditional wing any longer. It's, it's out like a flipper. And the shape of the beak, the shape of the head, the way the body is structured, it's all perfectly shaped for zipping through the water with minimal drag so they can catch fish and get something to eat while swimming. It's just, it's just sort of <laughs> eating on the go, and they do it perfectly. Now, some of the differences is how well each species is adapted for where they live. And we kind of talked about how our African penguin friends are so well adapted at heat regulation and kind of figuring out how they can do that with those bare patches above the eyes. And then with those that live in the colder climates, well, they have that extra layer of blubber. They have adaptations of the way the blood circulates through their feet to keep their feet warm while they're standing on the ice and, and so much more. So do they physically look bigger as well, since you mentioned the extra blubber? Can you see it to the naked eye? Or Yeah, I think if you could actually see the species all lined up, you can definitely see the different sizes. Now, I don't want you to think that just because they're bigger, they live in a colder climate. There are some species that are fairly small that do well in cold climates also, but they have that layer of blubber, and they have other adaptations that help them in the cold climate too. And earlier, we were talking about African penguins at the San Diego Zoo. What all goes into making a habitat reflect their natural habitat? Oh my gosh, Ebony, it's, it's really so much work that they put into this habitat. It, it was just built a handful of years ago. I mean, the, the boulders, the, the rocky beach, uh, the waters, and how it circulates like the ocean would move, and all the other species that call that habitat home. It's so well designed that the whole area... You know, we wanted to be exactly like the penguins experience in the wild because we wanted to be able to see natural behaviors. It does feel, honestly, too, for our guests as they walk into this space, even on their side of the habitat, our guests feel like they just walked to Boulder's Beach right there along the coast of South Africa. Speaking of keeping things natural, how do specialists working with African penguins at the San Diego Zoo handle the social dynamics you described? For instance, is it difficult for them not to intervene when a penguin is having difficulty fitting in or isn't faring well in the race for food? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Honestly, penguin drama is real, Ebony. <laughs> they do have their you know, disagreements and their kerfuffles, if you will. But it's really important that as much as our wildlife care specialists really care about each individual, they also understand that it's part of being an animal care specialist you can't interfere with the social structure when it comes to a colony or group that relies on a well-structured sort of group or society. And so we want to make sure, of course, that yes, everyone gets the food that they need and their proper diet and they stay healthy. But when it comes to the overall mental health, if you will, for the colony, we need to let the penguins work out their social dynamics on their own because this will really ensure the best balance in the overall health of the colony. That would be so hard for me. <laughs> As a mama bear, I would want to help. Right? African penguins are critically endangered. How do their challenges in nature differ from penguins living in the Arctic? 
Well, unfortunately, all penguin species are facing sort of this ever-changing ocean. You know, fish populations are shifting and decreasing, temperatures are changing, and it really has put a lot of stress on all penguin species that rely on, on these large amounts of fish. Now, for the African penguin, not only do they face those same challenges, but they also have to deal with their nesting sites being destroyed. And you remember earlier I had mentioned that they will burrow in guano or their waste, their excrement, to create their nesting sites. And you think of this happening over thousands of years of penguins on these beaches, how thick that guano must be. Well, here's the thing that's challenging for them. Guano, or in general bird waste, is really high in nitrogen. And this is a mineral that is really important to keeping healthy soil when you're looking to farm and grow crops. So for many, many years, the sites along the beaches that they call their nesting sites were mined. They were harvested. The guano was taken for fertilizer production. This destroying of that nesting site left a lot of these, these birds with nowhere to safely put their eggs. Because again, that guano helped protect them from the sun, protect them from predators, protect them from the cooler nights. And so now with this open space, it became very challenging for the penguin population, the African penguin population, to sustain proper levels. So we're just a few weeks into this podcast, and I'm already noticing that waste, animal waste just seems to be so significant in the wild. And it's something that I would have never thought of. Well, and, and, and to that point, Ebony, it's something that you learn very quickly when you start studying wildlife, that everything has an important role, whether it's their poop <laughs> or their activity in the environment. It all plays an important role for something within the ecosystem. It's just a matter of us being able to pay close enough attention to see how important it is and what role it plays. So how is the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance addressing the African penguins' conservation challenges? Well, of course, you know, we've mentioned in other episodes, we have our conservation hubs. We're all over the world helping, whether it's in partnership or with communities or sending our actual scientists there to do the work as well with other people. In the case of the African penguins, one of the cool stories that I love, and this isn't just us as the San Diego Zoo, these are zoos across the nation, across the world, participated in this. So as we mentioned, the big challenge African penguins are facing is a safe place to have a nest. But without that guano, what was one to do? Well, we started building different nesting type boxes that sort of replicated how the guano dugout really worked for these penguins. And then with several different designs available, zoos with African penguins deployed them across their habitats and let the penguins show us which one they preferred. And so of the top few that were selected by the penguins and zoos, those then were deployed to the beaches, allowing us to hopefully set up for maximum success while introducing these nest boxes uh, to the beaches uh, around South Africa. That's interesting. They're like pseudo product testers of sorts. Yeah, and it worked out pretty well. Now it's time for the San Diego Zoo Minute, an opportunity for you to learn what's new at the zoo. Baby alert! There's a newborn giraffe calf at the San Diego Zoo, and she has a name. The female calf has been named Mawe, meaning stones in Swahili. She was born to first-time mom Saba, and at birth she weighed a little less than 150 pounds and stood about 5 feet 10 inches tall. Mawe has been introduced to the other members of the herd, and both mom and baby are doing well. 
Fun fact, like Ebony said, Saba is 5 foot 10 and an adult giraffe's neck is 6 feet long. That means when Saba is an adult, her neck will be as long as she is tall at birth. As part of global conservation efforts, San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance partners with Southern African Foundation for the Conservation of Coastal Birds, also known as SANCOB. SANCOB is a first responders of sorts for coastal birds. Each year, their staff and volunteers treat more than 2,500 injured and sick and oiled seabirds. I'm bringing in now Dr. David Roberts to tell us more about SANCOB's 24-7 rescue efforts. Hi, Dr. Roberts. Hi, thank you for having me. So why is round-the-clock rescue service needed for coastal birds? It's quite amazing, but yes, we really do have a 24-hour service because at any point in time, we may have a big disaster, something like an oil spill or um, a mass mortality event of some sorts. But also we provide a service to the public, anyone who finds a sick or injured bird, and that bird needs attention, human intervention, and the ability to be rehabilitated. We try to look after that bird as soon as possible, because of course, if they're injured and they're suffering, they do need some help as quickly as possible. And therefore the 24 hour service helps. And a lot of these birds are endangered as well. So whatever we can do to save individuals can help the species. For the purpose of this conversation, we've been talking mostly about African penguins, um, but can you talk about some of the other coastal birds that are in need of rescue? Yes, we see sometimes over 30 different species every year. The most important ones to us, of course, the endangered ones. So here in um, Southern Africa, we have Cape Cormorants, they're endangered, and the Cape Gannet, which is also endangered. But we also see gulls, terns, and other species, sometimes the pelagic species like albatrosses and petrels also come through to Sankop. And does each species of coastal bird require a different type of care or is some of it an overlap of techniques? There's a lot of overlap and that's why we concentrate only on seabirds and coastal birds. They do require specific treatment. The penguins are what we're best at. For example, they need a lot of swimming space. And although all the birds need to swim, the others will need an aviary where they can fly and um, some of them are very delicate, and some of them are very tough. So we have to know what we're doing with each individual species to have the best results when it comes to the end of the day. So what happens if you do get a call that a raptor needs help? Do you call someone else? Yes, so we have partners and other places that look after other species. And of course, uh, members of the public don't know everyone to call for everything. So we are able to help them and refer them to the right people. So Dr. Roberts, what types of rescues does your team perform? Everything from assisting somebody who may find an injured or sick bird on the beach, and that involves some of our first responder team. These are volunteers in the local communities who can go to a beach and pick up a bird or collect it from somebody who's found it, to specialized seabird rangers that work in partnership with SANCOB and the local conservation authorities. And they actually work in the seabird colonies and can rescue birds as they're found in their own wild habitats to really big rescues where we may have abandoned chicks, um, hundreds of animals at one time, or something like an oil spill, which is a huge disaster. That requires really specialist equipment and specialist training. So it's a wide range of different things. And what obstacles do penguins face along the South African coast? 
Yeah, so we have our African penguin, and it really is facing a lot of challenges, and that's due to a host of different problems. One of them is just the degradation of their environment, things like habitat loss. It includes the lack of fish, so lack of prey, and that reduces their ability to raise chicks and survive in the wild. And there are a multitude of different contributing factors. Um, climate change is a big one, sea level, um, sea temperature changes, ocean acidification, pollution, habitat destruction, the list goes on. But all those little things that people do um, that impact our ecosystems have a knock-on effect. And the penguins as the top predator often are the indicator species that show that the, the ecosystem is in, it's declining and is in trouble. Can you tell us more about um, specifically your chick rearing program? What's a chick rearing program? Uh, so that's quite exciting. What we are able to do is collect eggs that have been abandoned and chicks that have been abandoned by the parents or maybe in unsafe areas and wouldn't survive in the wild. And the eggs are incubated in our chick rearing unit. Um, it's just a specialized center, which is with high biosecurity and little chicks hatch there. And then they're looked after by our team and interns until they're actually strong and healthy enough to be released again. And we release them at about the same age as they'd leave the nest and, and go into the wild in a natural system. We've spoken about the process of raising different species of birds and re-releasing them in, into nature. With the chick rearing program there in South Africa, is there a process of having to prepare the chick for nature? Yes. So the final stage after they've grown and they're healthy and they're fit is um, getting them ready to be released. And so we have a few criteria. They need to be able to swim well. They need to have waterproof feathers. So just like a duck, a penguin's feathers protect its body from getting wet especially after things like oil spills. We have to make sure that those feathers are strong enough, are waterproof enough so they don't get cold in the ocean that we have here. And then they must also pass all their, their health tests. They also have blood samples taken and um, have to have a veterinary check, making sure they're healthy to go out. And then instinct takes over. They're released and they can catch fish. So it's actually quite amazing that they look after themselves after that. So, Dr. Roberts, almost every year, San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance care specialists travel to South Africa to assist SANCOB with chick rehabilitation specifically. What goes into this work and, and what is it like to collaborate with other specialists? So we really enjoy our specialist partners that come from overseas to assist us. And from my point of view, it's often veterinarians and vet techs who assist me. And it's really amazing to do that collaboration because they've seen things differently. They have different approaches. We can discuss a lot of the work that they do, which is really pertinent to what we do. So I often pick up useful information from them and they learn a little bit about what we do with African penguins because we see so many of them. There's usually one or two tricks that I hope I can teach them too. And how does it feel for you after going through the reintroduction process and seeing that a chick is ready for return to the wild? What's that process like for you to actually see them re-released? It's the best part of the job, of course, is getting them back out into the wild and seeing them go and realizing that almost every bird that came through to Sankob would not have survived in the wild and we're giving them that second chance. So it's always a huge boost to our happiness levels. We release birds almost every week. So we're really excited about that. And it's, it's going to be quite amazing. Wow. It's like a graduation of sorts. So how successful is this program? Any 
organization that does rehabilitation must also say how well do these birds do in the wild. And we have a system where each bird gets a microchip, so we can actually follow up over years how well they're doing, if they're breeding, if they're successfully becoming part of that natural population. And we're happy to say that the chicks that get raised at Sankob have almost exactly the same survival rates as wild chicks from what natural colonies. Of course, those that come in with injuries, all of them don't get through the system. Some of them don't survive it, but we still do release quite a lot and we see them later. And that's the really rewarding thing. The fact that we can follow up in two or three years time, say they're breeding, they've moved from one colony to another and follow what they do in the wild through their microchips. And so that's just amazing. How has the pandemic impacted the work you do? Well, it started off with a lot of changes in terms of our team sizes. We had to go into two team system right at the beginning of the pandemic. And so we've had to make adjustments to just our workflow. One of the biggest problems that we had is we can't have our international collaborators come to South Africa and work with us. A lot of travel restrictions have stopped uh, zookeepers and vets from traveling from overseas. And we also rely on international volunteers, people doing gap years and internships with Sankop. Some of them will spend a whole year or six months working with us. And we just didn't get them from most of the countries you usually work with. The way that we've been able to overcome that is really through a huge response from South Africans. They've come to volunteer with us and um, boost our manpower. And so that's really worked. And what would happen if not for SANCOB? How essential, how crucial are the services provided by SANCOB? We feel like uh, we make a huge difference to seabird conservation in Southern Africa. There are a lot of other collaborating organizations that we work with that help us as well. What's really nice from our point of view as a non-profit organization is we aren't bogged down in the logistics and politics of a, a government organization. And therefore we can do things more quickly, we can achieve things um, more easily, and we are more free to be able to collaborate. So a lot of what we do is assisting with collaboration between different conservation organizations and NGOs and donors to be able to respond quickly. For example, for um, with something like an oil spill, where we can provide rehabilitation services there, we can respond quickly. And we had a, a big disease outbreak recently and those animals wouldn't be able to survive in the wild. So our rehabilitation is, is very important, giving those animals a second chance. But we also contribute to more big picture conservation. And we're quite vocal when it comes to the legal implications um, for conservation of protected areas, reducing overfishing, and ensuring that that gets into the public eye. And we also take part in a lot of the the working groups, government working groups, trying to make decisions and implement laws that will protect our marine ecosystem. And you're doing amazing work, but what more can be done to better protect penguins in in nature? What's essential at the moment is protecting the, the ocean ecosystem on which they rely. And the big cornerstone to that is the food availability. Overfishing and a lot of other effects have really reduced the stocks of the sardine and anchovy, which penguins eat. And that's having the biggest effect on massive decline in their numbers um, and may lead to their extinction rather soon. Uh, there is evidence that within 30 years, the African penguin might be functionally extinct. So what needs to happen is better protection of that ecosystem through big government action, reducing pollution, reducing overfishing. Public entities, uh, businesses, and individuals need to see what they can do to reduce those impacts. And then everyday people can also make a difference. Um, you vote with your wallet by 
buying products which are more sustainably sourced by reducing your plastic consumption, by reducing your consumption of energy. And I'm really thinking about what you do in your everyday life, which affects the larger ecosystem. Every little bit does make a difference. And everybody uses a little bit less, then there's more to go around and more for the, the natural environment. Great. Thank you so much for sharing with us, Dr. David Roberts with Sancob. It was wonderful chatting with you. That's it for Penguins for today. We hope you learned more about the tuxedoed birds. Thank you very much. That was great. And that's our show for today. I'm Ebony Monet. And I'm Rick Schwartz. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe and tune in to next week's episode in which we share with you some of the easiest ways to spot the difference between leopards and jaguars. For more information about the San Diego Zoo and San Diego Zoo Safari Park, go to sdzwa.org. Amazing Wildlife is a production of iHeartRadio. Our producer is Nakia Swinton. Our executive producer is Marcy DePina. Our audio engineer and editor is Amita Ganatra. For more shows from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.